Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding humanity and our place in the universe. But before I get started, a few reminders. First, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast of the Month is Alison Gerlach's The Unapologetic Capitalist, which is available at unapologeticcapitalist.com. The unapologetic capitalist preaches venture gospel for anyone who is compelled to build an opportunity of substantial long-term value. It's not a history program, but it's really fascinating nonetheless. It's thought-provoking and it explores issues that keep entrepreneurs, leaders, and business executives up at night in their pursuit for significant financial success. Really interesting show. Also, a plug for my Patreon page and all the other activities we do. 
If you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, wow, I love this podcast and I would so be happy to give a dollar an episode to Heather to keep it going because I love it so much and Heather's so great. You know what? You can do that. You can go to patreon.com slash nomad chick because I am a nomad chick. This was like my alter ego when I was 24 was nomad chick and I just can't seem to get away from it. It just sticks with me. Anyway, you can go to patreon.com slash nomad chick. There's also links on the website. You can become my patron for as little as a dollar an episode. And thank you so much to new patrons, Cindy and Candace. And you know what? There's some older, not older as an age, but older as an older time period donors like Natalie, who donated, I don't know, like a year ago, and I've never thanked her. And there's some wonderful people who've been donating from the beginning. So your support is always appreciated. And patrons get nifty rewards like members only feeds and early episodes, special members only episodes, chat sessions, and a lot more. Finally, to get the show notes for this episode via email, you can easily text me at 8016-TESCO. That's a U.S. number. So 1-8016-TEYSKO, 6839756 it is. And I will add you to the mailing list and send you a PDF of the show notes. Easy peasy. So let's move on to the second episode of Rebellions. If you haven't listened to the first yet, I would really recommend it as this episode is going to assume that you have listened to it. In that episode from about two weeks ago, we talked about the general causes of rebellions for our Tudor monarchs. And in this episode, I'm going to look at some of the more famous rebellions in chronological order. Then in the next episode, we'll kind of synthesize the information and look at the long-term effects of the Tudor dynasty and the monarchy in general. Well, you know what? That sounds both fascinating and exciting, doesn't it? It does. And I just use the word synthesize like that. I feel so smart. As I said in the last episode, Henry VII came to the throne through combat against Richard III after decades of civil war that we now call the Wars of the Roses. The rebellions against the early Tudors, especially Henry Tudor, were actually about removing the Tudors from the throne entirely, whereas the later ones involving succession were more about changing the succession rather than completely changing the monarch, replacing the monarch. So let's jump in and see what Henry Tudor had to deal with early on. Less than a year after defeating Richard III, Henry faced a rebellion that is now called the Lovell and Stafford Rebellion. Francis Viscount Lovell and Humphrey Stafford, they were high-up counselors and supporters of Richard III. They managed to not get themselves captured at Bosworth, and after Bosworth, they claimed sanctuary at Colchester, and then they escaped. So Henry Tudor had spies in the north telling him that they were gathering an army to overthrow him. The army failed. And Lovell fled to the court of Margaret of York in Flanders, while his buddy Stafford was executed after trying to claim sanctuary again, and then Henry Tudor forcibly removed him from sanctuary. So this was just less than a year after defeating Richard. And I always think it's interesting, because like I said last time, we look at Bosworth as being the definitive end of the Wars of the Roses, but at the time it wasn't so much. So... 
Almost immediately after this rebellion, Henry saw a more threatening one in the form of Lambert Simnel. So Lambert Simnel was a young boy who caught the attention of some people who weren't happy with Henry. And he claimed to be the Earl of Warwick, who was a Yorkist whose claim was better than Henry's. The Earl of Warwick was the son of the Duke of Clarence, who was Edward IV's brother. He was the one who was drowned in Malmsey wine, for those of you who follow that sort of thing. So this was his son, who would have been Edward IV's nephew, and he would have been the cousins of the princes in the tower and the cousin to Edward V. So Lambert Simnel himself, he looked a lot like Edward IV and his sons. So the rebels who'd picked him out actually first wanted to portray him as Richard, Duke of York. But then there was a rumor that the Earl of Warwick had died in the tower. And so they decided that that was really convenient. And they would say that Lambert Simnel was the Earl of Warwick. So they spread a rumor saying that Warwick had escaped from the tower and was with them. But the thing is, the actual Earl of Warwick was still alive and well and in the custody of Henry so he could be produced publicly. So it wasn't actually the smartest move. It wasn't that clever. Simnel did have some support from English and Irish nobles who were unhappy with the Tudors, but they were defeated at the Battle of East Stoke and King Henry pardoned Simnel it was probably because he could tell that he was just this young boy who was a puppet in the hands of the adults. And he actually gave him a job in the royal kitchens as a spit turner. When he grew older, he became a falconer. And there's actually almost no information about his later life at all. He died sometime between 1525 and 1535. That's a big decade. Sometime in there. He does seem to have married, and he's probably the father of a Richard Simnel, who was a canon at St. Osseth's Priory in Essex during the reign of Henry VIII. In 1489, and then 1497, Henry saw the Yorkist and Cornish rebellions, respectively. These weren't so much about overthrowing Henry, but they were about taxes, Yorkshire rebelled in 1489 over the fact that they didn't want to pay taxes for a war with France because France is so far away and they didn't think it really affected them. So the rebels actually killed Henry's tax collector, the Earl of Northumberland, which wasn't a good move. And Henry had to go and kick some proverbial ass, which he did. In 1497, Cornwall then didn't want to pay taxes to fight Scotland so Cornwall's like, oh, Scotland's so far away, we don't want to pay taxes. And they actually rebelled and marched to London. They were all killed at Blackheath, the leaders were executed, and Cornwall was heavily fined as a punishment. So that kind of um, didn't work out for them. The longest and most threatening rebellion that Henry saw was from Perkin Warbeck. His rebellion lasted eight years. And he picked a better person to impersonate, somebody who wasn't alive and in the custody of the king, one of the princes in the tower, Richard, Duke of York. And because it was always a mystery as to what happened to the princes in the tower, of course, it still is, it was a good person to impersonate because you can actually produce a body. 
nobody knew what happened to them. So during this time, it's actually the closest that Henry came to losing his throne. Of, of course, according to the Tudors, he was the son of a drunk in Tournai. And for some reason, he wound up going to school and learning Latin and music. Somehow he came to the notice of Edward IV's godson. He got paraded through the courts of Europe, had several European leaders agree that he was indeed Richard the Duke of York. He should be king of England. Then he sailed to England to lead a rebellion, was captured and executed. But of course, there is a conspiracy theory, which I, you know, I don't know, it sounds kind of likely. Um, according to Philippa Gregory, author of The White Queen, of course, she espouses this in the novels. She thinks this was highly unlikely that this son of a Watergate keeper who was a drunk could have wound up going to school and learning all of these things and coming to the attention of Edward IV's godson. She thinks that's actually really unlikely. So she has this theory that Elizabeth Woodville, who was the mother of the princes in the tower, of course, was actually able to smuggle Richard, her son, out of England to his aunt's court. And so it's possible that Perkin Warbeck might actually have been Richard, Duke of York. Even at the time, Elizabeth of York, Henry's wife and Richard's sister, had a difficult time being able to tell whether it was indeed her brother or not. So there is a lot of mystery around this one. Perkin Warbeck was really highly educated, came off as being, you know, really very noble. So, you know, I don't know. It It's along with that mystery over the princes in the tower. Who knows, right? But for the purposes of this discussion, Henry Tudor came very close to, to losing his throne with the Perkin Warbeck rebellion. And of course the Tudors would want to you know, spread the story that he was just a pretender, that there was no reason why he should be taken seriously. Eventually he was executed. Perkin Warbeck was. And so we move on. Henry Tudor's son, Henry VIII, he saw three pretty big rebellions, two of which were actually quite large. The first in 1525 was the amicable great rising now, that was a response to taxes to fund another war with France. Seems like there's a lot of taxes to fund war with France, right? Seems the, the ongoing thing is, when in doubt, have a war with France. The rebellion spread throughout East Anglia, the Midlands, parts of the home counties, and they were actually successful. This was a rebellion that was kind of successful because the government ended the tax. They said, okay, no tax. The Silken Thomas Rebellion was in Ireland. This was basically a guy called Silken Thomas, Thomas O'Neill, the Earl of Kildare. His father had been arrested, and the Kildares had been English deputies in Ireland, but more and more English officials were coming in and taking their positions, and so they rebelled. They were defeated and executed. The most famous rebellion for Henry VIII probably would be the Pilgrimage of Grace. That's probably one of the most famous rebellions for all the Tudors. And that was from 1536 to 37. They were actually three separate rebellions in Northern England, one in Lincolnshire and then in Yorkshire. And their reaction to the Reformation and all of the changes in religion. And of course, they also incorporated some underlying economic issues 
So with these rebellions, as we saw last week, it's very rare that it's just one straight cause. You know, there's usually multiple issues that then kind of coalesce against or around one kind of main theme. But so there were economic and social issues as well. There were a lot of rumors at the time that with the religious changes, things would happen. Like, for example, white meat would no longer be available to commoners. It was a time of great change, obviously. The monasteries were on the brink of disillusion. People were coming in and destroying idols and relics. And being so far north and so far away from the center of power, it was really difficult to get news of what was actually happening. So there's a rebellion against the new regime and the new regulations. At their height, the rebels actually reached over 40,000, over 40,000. And Henry was forced to negotiate with them to buy some time. He invited the leader, Robert, Ask, to spend the holidays with him. And then when Ask went back north, more fighting broke out. And that had nothing to do with Robert Ask, but it provided Henry with an opportunity to go back on his word. He had promised pardons to the rebels if they desisted, ceased to rebel. And when there was violence, it gave him a chance to say, oh, look, you broke your word and took Ask and the other leaders into custody and executed them. Moving on to Edward VI, Henry's son, he only reigned for just about six years, but there were several large-scale rebellions that he had to deal with. The Western Rebellion in 1549 was a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. This was also called the Prayer Book Rebellion. The rebels, this was in Cornwall and Devon, they were protesting against the imposition of Cramer's Book of Common Prayer. And while they were at it, they also wanted to end the taxes on sheep and wool, and again, this shows that in some of the rebellions that we think of as just religious, there were also these economic tensions. The rebels demanded things like transubstantiation and purgatory be included back in the official liturgy and that relics come back into the services. And the government actually had to fight five battles. The rebellion lasted several months through the summer, and they had to fight five battles to regain control. And finally, by the end of August, they had control in 1549. Edward also saw Kett's rebellion in Norfolk, which I find to be a really fascinating rebellion because it was the only one, I think the only major one, where the rebels were actually protesting that the Protestant Reformation wasn't going far enough and that the priests didn't know enough about the new doctrines. And so they were protesting that. They were also protesting land enclosures. So, you know, if you're going to protest some religion, throw in some land enclosures and put yourself together and have a have a rebellion. There's, you know, something for everybody to rebel with then. It's like a smorgasbord of rebellions. So they set up these camps and they captured Norwich and eventually they were defeated and the main leaders were left to hang in chains, as you do. Mary started off her reign with her, the rebellion of her subjects and trying to raise Lady Jane Grey to the throne. So her reign actually started off with a rebellion. And this was the plot that started with when Edward VI, her brother, feared that England would go back to the Pope and Catholicism after he died. So he made a change to his will and Henry VIII's will, naming Jane Grey as his successor. She was the granddaughter of Henry's sister Mary, and was next in line to the throne if Mary Tudor and Elizabeth were excluded. It's likely that Edward actually would have wanted his sister, Elizabeth, to take over, 
But if he was going to exclude Mary because she had been named a bastard, he really had to do the same for Elizabeth, who also had been named a bastard. So Jane becomes queen when the Duke of Northumberland crowned her. But of course, Mary was able to raise troops. And after nine days, Northumberland surrendered. And of course, as we talked about in a previous episode, Lady Jane Grey was executed. They didn't actually want her. Mary didn't want to execute her, really, because she again saw her as a pawn similar to Lambert Simnel. And she really wanted to be gracious and forgiving and not execute Jane Grey. But then there were some other rebellions that sort of had Jane Grey as a figurehead, even though she was in the tower and had nothing to do with it. And so she had to execute her. Another threat was from Thomas Wyatt. He rebelled to protest Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. The rebels were worried that a Spaniard was going to dominate England because, of course, a woman couldn't stand up for herself if she was married to a man. He would rule everything, and it would be a Spaniard ruling England, and you can't have that. And they were also worried that after all of the reforms of Edward, the Catholics were going to remain control, were going to come back and, and regain control. So there was also a lot of xenophobia in England at the time, a f- lot of fear of foreigners coming in and destroying their culture. <coughs> Donald Trump. <coughs> Did I just say that? So there was a rebellion to force Mary to marry a nice English boy. It was originally meant to be a four-prong attack on London, but Wyatt was actually the only one who was able to raise his troops, 5,000 men. He reached London where he realized he was the only one who was there, and he was arrested and executed. Elizabeth I faced far fewer rebellions than her siblings, her father, and her grandfather did in England, but she dealt with a lot more in Ireland. And this was because of the growing English presence in Ireland. And also a lot of it was down to interclan fighting that the English got involved in when they sort of took over different places without understanding what was going on with the different clans. There were several Irish rebellions, some of which involved the potential of foreign aid to the rebels. And for that reason, they were even more pressing to the English crown. So when you've got a set of Irish rebels appealing to Spain or to France to support them, that's a much bigger threat to England than simply having inter-clan warfare in Ireland, which is also annoying and kind of a pain for you in England. I mean, it's bad anyway, but, you know, thinking about it from England's perspective. But as soon as you get Spain or France involved in it, it takes a whole nother, a whole nother turn. One of these was the final one that was led by Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, lasted for eight years until 1603. And it resulted in several English defeats. And Elizabeth eventually managed to send enough forces to crush the rebellion. And that was the last one she had to deal with in Ireland. In England, the most serious rebellion that Elizabeth faced was the rebellion of the Northern Earls in 1569. And we talked about this a little bit in the episode about Mary, Queen of Scots. This idea that Mary would marry the Duke of Norfolk and force Elizabeth to name her as her, Elizabeth's, heir to the throne. Despite the fact that the rebels managed to actually get to Durham Cathedral and celebrate the Catholic Mass, The rebellion really didn't get enough traction, and 
as Elizabeth's army approached, the rebels pretty much fled. Northumberland was executed, but the main planner was the Earl of Westmoreland, and he was actually never captured. Again, another one in 1596, the Oxfordshire Rebellion was a flop because only four rebels showed up to fight, but the government still executed them all. I can only imagine how pissed off they all would have been at their fellow rebels. You know, you show up to the rebellion and it's you and three other people and the government comes and executes you. That's so funny. It's not funny for the four people, but in hindsight, how not to plan a rebellion. Have more than four people show up. Finally, in 1601, the Earl of Essex, who had been a favorite of Elizabeth's, actually even rumored to be her lover, there was a lot of intrigue as Elizabeth was getting older and people were trying to plan for what was going to happen after she died. Essex wanted more power and more prestige at court, and he was really kind of a brat about it and was really loud and really kind of ungrateful and ungracious and annoyed a lot of people. And Elizabeth refused his application for a patent for wines, which was a considerable source of his income. And so he began to brood about the injustice with which he was being treated. And the whole act of rebellion actually only lasted 12 hours. It was a day he was kind of set up because people knew that what was going to happen. Within 10 days, Essex was found guilty of treason and he was executed within two weeks. So those are the highlights of some of the rebellions that the Tudor monarchs faced. In the next and final episode on this little mini-series on rebellions, we're going to look at how rebellions changed the monarchy, both for the Tudors and long-term. So now for the book recommendation, which is Tudor Rebellions by Anthony Fletcher and Dermot McCulloch. Remember that you can get the show notes and this transcript as well as sign up for the newsletter by simply sending a text with your email address to the listener support line, 801-6-TESCO, U.S. number 801-683-9756. It's totally easy. You can do it right now unless you're driving, which you shouldn't do it when you're driving. You can do it when you stop. You can also get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com slash Englandcast or via Twitter at Tesco at T-E-Y-S as in Sam K-O. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. The next episode, we kind of got off kilter here. I normally do the Tudor Times one around this time of the month, but we kind of got off schedule. So the next episode in about a week and a half or so is going to be the interview with Tudor Times on their person of the month. And then we'll wrap up rebellions. And then I'm going to be away for a bit, moving back to the U.S. from Spain. But never fear, faithful listeners. I actually have some fantastic guest episodes lined up. So you can rest assured that I will still be showing up in your feed, even when I'm away. You can't get away from me that easily. So don't forget to check out the website, support the show on Patreon, and thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. Blow, northern wind, a sandful may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that solely Sam lies on sick. Men's cool maiden of meek, fair and freight of thunder.